You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 634 for January 3rd, 2024. Happy New Year. On this episode, saxophonist Benjamin Koppel. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the bonus show in which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Benjamin talks about the way his dogs connect him to the larger world. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the show. You'll get other behind-the-scenes info, other bonus shows. And for each episode, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of that episode. This one was brought to you by Arthur Kawa. Thanks, Arthur. Benjamin Koppel's latest album with Scott Colley and Brian Blade is called Perspective. Here's the opening track. Benjamin Koppel, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It is such a pleasure to have you. We are talking about the trio record Perspective with Scott Colley and Brian Blade. And this trio has been together for a decade now. Can you give us a little history on how you first got together? Well, we first got together in Copenhagen. Um, I was playing, I was actually putting together my, my annual festival in 2010, I believe. I've been working with New Yorker pianist Kenny Werner for quite some years now, and we kind of had this thing where we put together this program for my festival. And in 2010, I believe it was, we wanted to set up a concert with Kenny, with Kenny's music and Kenny's quintet, which included Randy Breger, whom I've been working with already in the 90s, and Scott Colley and Brian Blade. And for the sound check for that concert or concert series, I played. I, I believe we played four nights in a row or five nights in a row. But for the first um, sound check, we just got into a trio session where we just played together. I don't remember. Maybe Kenny was late or at an interview or 
I don't remember why Canyon Rain wasn't there. But anyway, we got into this trio thing and we just enjoyed playing music so much instantly together that actually it was Scott who said, well, this trio we need to develop and explore because we have we have possibilities here. So that's actually where it started at a sound check for another gig. And then we had fun playing this almost a whole week with the quintet. Obviously, it was great always to play with Randy and Kenny. And then we just pursued it, got into, you know, calendar administration and found out when we had the you know, the time, the opening to, to do some more, which we had wanted to do really quickly afterwards. And we got into it, made a tour. And after our first trio tour, we were really convinced, all of us, that we needed to do more. So we put together the next period, which also included time in New York, where we recorded our first album, which is just entitled Copy Collie Blade Collective. We recorded that at Sears Sound Studio in New York, which was great. And then we it just developed from there, and it's a it's an ongoing thing. And even though our calendars, each one of us is pretty tight and very rarely fit together, we do uh, make it a priority to to get together once in a while, usually once a year or something like that, and explore new you know new universes of our trio music. experience are those moments of instant musical affinity like you just described are they common or are they rare well to me uh, i've been so fortunate to experience it quite a few times for instance first time i ever played with kenny bueno who became my musical brother and we're so close and we've been working so much together in so many different uh, settings we played together in 2006 i believe the first time which was the Danish drummer Alex Reel, who's kind of my my uncle since he played with my father even before I was born. Alex had his 50 years uh, anniversary as a musician, and he wanted to put together a band that kind of included a lot of musicians that he had worked with and loved. And so we put together a band with Bobby Watson, Phil Woods, and me, three saxophone players, three saxophone players from, from uh, three different generations. And then he wanted to do the rhythm section to be Kenny Werner and Pierre Bouzigui, French bass player, and Alex. And so that was the first time I ever met Kenny, and it was great. And we just immediately, you know, got together and said, like, okay, we need to do some more. So I've, I've been I've been experiencing it quite a few times. 
You mentioned that this band is called the Couple Collie Blade Collective. Does that word collective reflect the way that you make music together, decide on repertoire, compose, decide on venues, any of that? How does the word, other than just as a name for a group of people, does it factor into the way the band functions? It totally factors in. It's so much a democracy that we sometimes have difficulties deciding what to do because everyone defers to the others. But on stage, it's really great because we it's never about us as egos. It's always about the trio. So when we're on stage, it's always about the music. It's never about somebody taking the stage or driving a special um, idea or, you know, and, and we, everyone is listening and and reacting to each other. And, and everyone in this trio is, we're all about leaving space for the others. Actually, we're all about playing as little as possible, if that makes sense, because we really want to, you know, the sum of us to become much more than just three musicians playing together. So it is a true democracy. It is a true collective in all ways, in all you know, possible ways we can think it. I want to uh, dive into that idea of space a little bit more. This is, of course, a chordless trio, so you, you know, a, a listener might expect that it has more space in it because there's no chordal instrument. But also, beyond whatever you might just expect from not having a piano or guitar or something, it has a lot of space even beyond that. And that, I mean, that suggests to me a level of trust and comfort, and also that thing you are kind of driving at—that that like leaving your ego at the door because you don't feel compelled to fill up every moment. I'd love to hear more about how that feels for you on, on stage. Well, uh, to begin with, I can, I can tell you that the three of us are really, really close friends off stage, which is not always the case of the musicians or the settings that we play in, because all of us get to play with a lot of musicians, a lot of different settings. And, you know, it's usually, Thank God, it's usually a, a friendly atmosphere, and usually it's we play with with good friends. But with this trio, it's quite extraordinary because we are really close, and we kind of you know we stay at each other's houses, and the families know each other very well, and so it's kind of 
it's become more than friends. It become we have become families, and that transcends into what we do when we play together. So just to start there, it's it's a very special uh, relationship we have the three of us. You know, we are totally brothers, which is I'm proud to say, and I'm also happy to say it. And we, because we enjoy each other's company, and we share so much more than only music. And um, so when we get on stage, <clears throat> everyone of us are we are all really keen on exactly leaving the ego at the door and and make music together and see where we can go with with the unity that we create together and well in terms of compositions every one of us we uh we bring new originals to the to the trio or new ideas and once in a while on on both the our trio albums we also have collective compositions um so everyone brings in ideas and and thoughts uh, of you know creating an atmosphere or a vibe or a, a song that would fit the trio for us to explore and go out on and and hopefully invent something new that we haven't done before so i think it's we are really a, a true collective in the sense that uh, we really want you know to leave out as much of ourselves as possible so there's a lot of different composers and musicians through time who have been credited with saying it's not about what you play, it's what you about what you don't play. Or the, the most important thing in the music is the pause or, you know, lines like that. But with us, it's really actually true because it's everyone's like, oh, man, I create this atmosphere and now I can leave it, leave it, you know, I can leave it, I can stop playing because... Brian got this or Scott got this or, you know, so, so we are, we are very much into that, all of us. And that makes it really fun to play with. And, and also it, it's, it stays super fresh all the time. While we're talking about a well-worn musical concepts, like the thing about it's the notes you don't play. I think another one is that, and this is not just for jazz, but I think for, for a lot of music as a whole is that young players start out playing everything. And then you, as you get older, you figure out what you can leave out. I'm curious if that's your own experience or were you always comfortable in these big spacious musical environments? Well, um, hopefully I have changed too <laughs> in the sense that uh, for me, music is not about the result. It's about the journey. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm sure I, I speak for, for Scott and Brian too. It's about what we do and what we create. It's not so much about, you know, standing with a result or an award or a prize or whichever amount of albums we've sold or whatever that's that comes after. And it's not why we do it. We do it because we love the journey. We love the process of creating music together. And uh, I always loved that. And that's also where we develop both as human beings and, and musicians, which goes hand in hand. And, and so to answer your question, hopefully, and I think, thankfully, I've, I've developed too. Probably I was much more eager and you know wanted to do much more when I was young. Because that's usually where you are when you're young. You want to go out there and just set the house on fire. But the, as you grow older and you know get dogs and kids and stuff like that, you realize that the world is not about me. It's about with the relations that I can create with other people 
and what we can create together. And, and that's how we make music as well. So definitely, I hope I have developed too in that uh, respect. Let's take a quick break from the interview to remind you that you can support what I do for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. I make high-quality, long-form jazz interview podcasts, and I've been doing that for close to 17 years now. If that's something you value, I hope you'll help me keep doing it and support the mission of this show to tell the stories of improvising musicians by joining today at thejazzsession.com slash join. Now, back to the episode. alluded to your father earlier and your dad your uncle your grandfather are are and were all prominent musicians can yeah. you talk a little bit about uh, who they were because but american listeners are mostly not going to know and about their influence on you in particular well um as you mentioned i i come from a big uh, music family in denmark my grandfather Hermann de Koppel, he was a classical pianist and composer and a professor at the conservatory in copenhagen he himself was a student of the national composer in Denmark, Carl Nielsen, in the late 1920s, early 30s. And uh, my grandfather he became one of the most like prominent leading figures in modern classical music in, in Denmark. <clears throat> and um, he and my grandmother, they had four kids, my father being the youngest. All of, all of those four became quite prominent musicians. Really prominent, actually, and driving into different, you know, genres. Lune, my my father's sister, she became a very famous opera singer. You know, she was a head star at this opera house in Sydney and Royal Opera in Denmark, and so on. And Teresa became a very, you know, sought after piano teacher, like super classical piano teacher. And Thomas and Anna's the two brothers, youngest brothers, they. Uh, formed the band Savage Rose in the late 60s, which became a really big, like, beat rock, whatever you would call it, thing. Playing internationally, played at Newport Festival in, I think, 1970. They shared the stage with uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears and Sly and Family Stone, stuff like that. And uh, and then this, my generation, we have a lot of musicians in my generations in my family. Some play folk music. Some is my sister. She's a gospel soul singer. We have, uh, you know, classical musicians, soul musicians, all kinds of, you know, and, and, and then there's me. And now the fourth generation, which is, for instance, my daughters and my nieces and stuff, they are 
a lot of them are actually taking up music as well. So it is a big, you could call it music dynasty, or you could just look at the fact that it's really hard to break their social heritage in in <laughs> any way, both good and bad. We've seen we've seen it so many times with with people struggling coming from hard social heritage, and it's you know it's super hard to to break it. But for us, it's actually the same. Only for us, it has had a really a positive like frame because music has always been a, a place where we have been including in in the parents or the parents generations uh, line of work uh, so it's positive it's been a a feast you know i never saw my parents go to work i saw them play and the word play in english has this really beautiful double sense that it's you, you can play music but you can also play like playing with toys and and for me i always saw my parents and and the family that generation of my family playing and so for that reason it was much harder to not become a musician than actually become a musician because we were included when we were four five six years old we played drums and sang on our parents albums and at concerts and stuff so we were always included i was you know brought on tour when i was two years old i slept on the stage where my father played you know he he played Hammond organ. He made a you know kind of intimistic bed on stage with the blankets that his Hammond organ was wrapped in during transport. So we were always tagging along, and uh, for that reason, we just you know music just became our way of living, and uh, so no long education here. You know, it's such a it's such a commentary on how important it is for young people to see examples of people doing artistic professions because i think it's hard if you you know if you grow up in the states especially if you grow up in a school system where the you know the music program has been cut for example and you don't participate in music or you never see professional musicians because they don't come to your town for example it can be hard to imagine that's a thing you could do where you know you you are the counter example of that, where you were surrounded by people who embodied the idea of becoming a performing artist. And so you did. And it just seems, I don't know, I'm making a speech more than a question here, but that it strikes no, me as so important. It's it's true. And actually, you know, one of the questions I've been asked quite a lot in my life, especially when I was younger, it's like, do you really dare going through life not having a regular income? And, and, uh, you can look at it that way, or you can also look at it at another way. It's saying that people who has a, a regular job, they don't know if they have that job in six months from now. They just assume it. So I never know which which gig I have in six months from now, but really no one does, except we have a tendency to think, oh, if you have a regular job, you're there forever, which might be the case. But it, again, it might not be the case. So I think it's all, you're totally right about, you know, <clears throat> if you see, uh, you know, somebody who set an example with, with pride and joy and having a ball doing it, then you actually get, you know, motivated to try to follow that line of work or the idea of working like that uh, yourself without being, you know, judgmental on your own about Oh, I can't dream about doing this because it's then I have no regular income, you know, stuff like that. So I think there's a lot of people who are actually get limited by the uh, idea of living up to some kind of convention about 
well, we need this kind of money if, like every month for, for the next 50 years until the pension. And really, I don't think it, it works like that, not even for the people who have you know, a, a steady job. You mentioned when you were talking about your family, and this is true for you too, that many of them really crossed genres. And I mean, in your yeah. own case, you've composed work for theater and classical pieces. You've played in soul and rock bands and, of course, in the jazz world. In any way, is that a function of the size of Denmark where specialization is less of a thing and kind of universality becomes more of a thing because there are fewer people? Or is it just the tendency of the people in your family? Or is it nothing that can be simply it, answered? I think it's definitely something that goes within our family. There's a lot of, most, you know, most people, most musicians, they go one direction and they do that also here. But, you know, my grandfather, he, he was in the late 1920s, early 1930s, even though he was a classical piano player. And back then, even Tchaikovsky, classical composer, Russian composer, he was bad taste because he was, you know, big emotions. So, but my father, my grandfather, he was super interested in the new music, which was jazz. My grandfather, he loved Ellington, he loved Armstrong, and he even attended uh, Armstrong's concert in Copenhagen in, I believe, 1933, which, you know, back then, it the, Denmark didn't know what it was, but he knew it, and he wanted to go. He was super excited about it, but he had to go, you know, uh, in 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 disguise. Because if somebody had, you know, seen him going to a, a jazz concert <laughs> like that, he would have been thrown out of the conservatory for real. <laughs> so he he went to the, in disguise and went to this concert, but he was super much into Armstrong and Ellison, which was the shit back then, which and it still is, by the way. But back then it was really new, right? And and he kept on being open towards all kinds of music. And I remember he taught me a very you know important lesson when I was a, a young kid. He said there are only two types of music, good music and bad music. It's as simple as that. And you can decide for yourself what has you know resonance with you. That's good music to you. It doesn't mean it has to be good music for other people. So decide for yourself, feel it, open your ears, open your heart, open your mind. Also for the music that you might not understand at first eardrop or second eardrop, give things a chance. And if it if it you know grows on you, maybe you should check it out. So only two kinds of music, good and bad, and that's the way I've lived my musical life. And I'm so thankful for that advice because it made me, you know, I've been recording with 
Egyptian musician, and I've been playing Jewish folklore. I've been playing with the state ensemble of Yava, Chinese musicians, Cuban musicians, African, you know, Brazilian, whatever, jazz, rock, soul, classical symphony orchestras. Because, you know, if I felt like, oh, this music interests me, then I have to learn it as well as possible and see what I could bring to it. And so for me, it's always about learning. That's probably, you know, what it comes down to when... When you ask this question, it's it's about me diving into a situation where I can learn from somebody who knows something about music that I don't. And thankfully, there's a lot of those people. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to ask you two questions about specific compositions of yours that are on perspective. Yeah. And one is speed cubing Rubik's. And yeah. I want—I wanted to ask you about that, particularly because it's only in the last couple of years that I have discovered that speed cubers, people who quickly solve Rubik's cubes, are a thing. And yeah. so I, I'm curious: is this title indicative of a skill you have that we need to know about, or something you're interested in? It—it's actually inspired by my oldest daughter Astrid, who had you know, like a thing, like five years ago, six years ago, where she dove into <clears throat> the the Rubik's cube and became really good at it. And could solve it like in 30, 40 seconds, which no matter how hard I tried to spoil it for her. And she actually told me, and I, I could come down to a, a minute and 40, then I could <laughs> solve it when I was good. But it, uh, I've always, you know, I've, I've always been a chess player. I love playing chess and and actually chess by the clock. So speed chess, not like those games where you have to sit two or three hours. I don't have patience for that, but speed speed chess, like five minutes on the clock, or even one minute on the clock, that really interests me because then I have to, you know, use all my, you know, brain capacity and see the positions and feel the the moves, and it you have to bring in both intuition and knowledge and courage at the same time. So, so I think there's a kind of a familiar relationship between Rubik's and playing chess, but also playing jazz, because you have to instinctively react on what's going on. And so you have to have a lot of skills and tools, but at the same time, in the situation where you play with other people, you have to forget about the tools, because then if you don't, they will be standing in the way of you reacting spontaneously and by heart to whatever going on. And if you have to find the right tool, then the moment has passed. So I think there's kind of a, it's you know, a familiarity between speed cubing Rubik's and 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 chess and and music and also actually languages, math. There's a lot of these things that are somehow combined, at least in my mind. And and the Rubik's is actually it's definitely some one of it.
There's a song on here that's called For Cy Johnson. Yeah. A lot of jazz fans will certainly know Cy. He passed away last summer, but he uh, did a lot of work with Mingus and with Lee Konitz and, and many other people. Did did you have a personal connection with Cy or a connection with his music? I have a connection with his music. I never met him, unfortunately. I know Scott met him once, I believe. But uh, there's there are a lot of unsung heroes in the history of jazz. A lot of unsung heroes. Some have been, you know, have had really rough lives. Obviously, a lot of people, black people have, you know, experienced rough racism, which has been terrible and which have, haven't prevented them from making their music, but has definitely made them struggle so much more than they were, you know, they should have. And, and it has been, you know, there's a lot of tragedy involved with that. So there are a lot of unsung heroes in, in jazz and, and Cy Johnson is one of them because he was a great arranger, composer and a fantastic musician. And not a lot of people know about him anymore. And uh, so for me, it was both a personal like homage to him because he's really he was a master of what he did, but it's also kind of an homage to exactly the unsung heroes. There were so many in jazz history on whose shoulders we all stand, even if we don't know them by name and, or can call them out. We know that they came before us and they, like, you know, paved the way, so to speak. So he's definitely one of them. And also, this song has a special vibe, which is kind of a again, inspired by his piece, because he wrote a fantastic piece called For Harry Carney, and which I tried to like stand on the shoulders on the vibe of that song, which is a song I love, and Harry Carney is one of the biggest saxophone players in jazz history. Again, quite an unsung hero, actually, because he was just, just sitting in the, the Elton band for all of his life, and I do like this with my fingers when I say just, because that was a perfect place for him, and I mean, it was a, it was a marvelous. He's he's really one of my biggest heroes. But again, he didn't make fifty solo albums or anything. He did that, and he was a master of doing it. So, Cy Johnson's for Harry Carney is a great inspiration to me, and so I tried to write a song for Cy Johnson, which stood on the shoulders of of his song to Harry Carney. As we come to a close, I just I wanted to ask about something that you mentioned to me off the air, which is that you and Scott and Brian, you play together in other contexts, not just in the context of this trio. Can you tell me more about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Me and Scott, we've been playing in many, many different contexts. We have really a long history together. We 
did an album with Joe Lovano with where we played the mezzo saxophone, both of us, which is a special instrument made by a Danish instrument maker, Peter Jessen. We've been making a lot of different projects, touring a lot, and me and Scott, we also made a duo album. Scott and Brian have been playing in numerous different uh, occasions together with uh, Billy Childs or Wolfgang Mutschbiel or, you know, a lot of different people. And me and Brian, we've been working in, in different settings as well. We just actually recorded a, not too long ago, or it's, it's going to be released next year probably, an album where we play with my father, for instance, a, tri- a trio album with hammered organ, drums, and saxophone. We also recorded an album, me and Brian, with String Quartet, which is coming out next year. So all of us are doing different set- settings and musical situations together, but outside of this trio. So, and that gives us kind of a really good, you know, foundation for us when we meet again every year because we it's an ongoing thing and we get out and explore music together in different situations and then we come back to the trio and just feel at home so um yeah we do a lot of things together definitely the new album from the couple Kali blade collective is called perspective it's been such a joy to have you i hope you'll come back again i really enjoyed talking to you benjamin i would love to come back thank you so much for the invitation Thanks to my guest, Benjamin Koppel. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and to Sarah Walter for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. You can follow The Jazz Session on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. Take a second right now to rate and review the show wherever you listen. It really helps me reach new folks. I have a second podcast called A Brief Chat, which is also an interview show, although right now I'm primarily using it to send out poems from Revolutionary Letters by Diane DePrima. You can find it at abriefchat.com or just search for A Brief Chat wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasting, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. And if you like what you just heard, please become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.